and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Longman. In this episode, we are talking with Liz Canfield. Liz is a sound artist, zine maker, teacher, and community organizer here in Richmond, Virginia. She teaches as assistant professor in the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. One of her main focuses has been working with people incarcerated in the Richmond City Jail. It was great to sit down with Liz and talk about some of the projects she has been working on inside the jail, how that process works, and why she feels these projects are important. If you listen closely, you may be able to hear her little dog, who is sitting in with us for the interview. Your official title is assistant professor, mm-hmm. um, yes. and you do a lot of work outside of that. Yeah. So yes. you're kind of a community activist. Yeah, something. I guess I am, yeah. So what so, projects are you working on as your So um, the main project I'm working on right now is kind of a hybrid VCU project. VCU is involved, um, working off of a $25,000 grant that I got from VCU um, with the Richmond City Jail. Um, and that grant is being spent a number of ways, but um, I guess... Four years ago, um, I joined my colleague Dave Coogan, who'd been teaching writing in the jail. Um, I joined him and I taught my first class with a group of VCU students and a group of um, prisoners of RCJ. Um, and it started out as a kind of small writing workshop. We had about I don't know, 15 people on each side and from each place. And those classes are taught in the jail. And it's kind of evolved over the last four years to be a community-based arts workshop. And so even though, you know, the writing or poetry is the primary um, driving force behind it, we've been able to put uh, kind of a makeshift recording studio in there, so there's a lot of music. Um, in the jail? Mm-hmm. A recording studio in the yeah, jail? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So... That was my biggest accomplishment um, of the last, like, you know, couple years or so. Was we were able to um, just get, uh, you know, a, a Mac tower and um, controller and you know some some instruments, and that um, is also largely due to um, Andy McGraw's involvement too. Andy McGraw's a ethnomusicologist at University of Richmond. Okay. And he is the director of the Gamelon uh, Orchestra here mm-hmm. in town. And so um, I contacted him, I guess, two summers ago because I wanted the Gamelon, Gamelon to play, um, the Gamelon Orchestra to play in the jail. Um, and then he was like, yeah, you know, we could do that. And then um, I was like, well, why don't you come in for a couple of classes and see if you like it? And he was like, oh my gosh, and he fell in love. And so he's teaching like little kind of music, um, music classes, um, and kind of talking to people about music and sound. And then, um, John Skritza, um, was able to get us a computer and then, um, I loaded Ableton and then Andy had a few instruments and controllers and we just kind of, you know, cobbled it together and, uh, and that was in the old jail. We had to we had to dismantle it because they've moved. So, you, so are you going to put it back into the new jail? Well, that you know, I think right now that remains to be seen. Um, 
because the new jail has a different layout and different structure than the old jail did. Um, the new jail is a most most of the people in the new jail. I don't know if most, but most people that I know who are in the new jail who are incarcerated there are in the, in pods rather than open floor kind of. It's more like a prison. So yeah, so it's like you know more like a maximum security prison and. Um, and in the old jail, there was a classroom, really great, really great place. Um, John Dooley, who's our contact person there, is a really great guy. Um, but anyway, and so John would go on the tier and be able to pull people from different places into this classroom for class, and we were able to keep the um, studio stuff there in the classroom. But now there's no classroom, so we don't know. We're kind of reimagining what that setup might look like, and so you know, do we go laptop? Do we, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not dead in the water. It's just that's the interesting because coming from a um, professional audio background, I realize that, and plus making music most of my life, like music's art, mm -hmm. and but it's probably one of the hardest excessive like recorded music. Mm -hmm. is the, probably the hardest thing to get into excessively outside of maybe like arts with welding or something like yeah, that just yeah. because of the required apparatus um, and it seems like art is good any form for mm -hmm. people that are having a very hard time due to yeah. their circumstances um, that's really cool you did in the jail yeah well there's a lot there are a lot of um, I think if you if you go to the library or you know, look around, or they're probably on the internet too. Um, a lot of recordings are done kind of um, outsiders, quote unquote, people who are not incarcerated, mm. kind of going into the jail and, and recording mm. what's going on there. Um, and that's where you get like the below max recordings. Mm. I mean, there's some classic ones, but even, you know, contemporary people kind of going in and being, you know, I really want to hear what's happening there. And we felt that, you know, that the more empowering thing would be to have people teach each other how to use, how to use it and um, how to use Ableton, how to, how to make sound, how to get the kind of sound they want out of it. And mm -hmm. then we had, um, we had instruments as well, so people teaching each other how to play guitar, bass, whatever. Um, and of course, there are people who already know, um, people who already have engineering experience who are in there. Uh, people have, um, you know, you're in bands or um, who play, you know, so it's really great musicians. And so and music is a really great um, way for people to also collaborate, you know, it's a collaborative kind of art, whereas, you know, writing is. Writing can be a lot more solitary. And that concludes part one of our four-part interview with Liz Canfield. All of our episodes are available at variousthings.org. This interview was conducted on April 23rd, 2014.
welcome back to Various Things. This is part two of our four-part interview with Liz Canfield. Enjoy. Shops or whatever, like day long things. We never had like something that was ongoing, and so um, you know, if there is other stuff out there, they're not you know really publicizing it, which makes sense too. But but um, you know, it was it was pretty amazing um, that we got it even through the door. I mean, the, this uh, this sheriff, um, you know, for whatever reason, you know, let us do it. So. Um, but also I think it's because, you know, we're very um, trustworthy with the material. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't released any of it, mm-hmm. per se. Um, certainly not anybody's name associated with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only, there are only three tracks right now that are kind of out there um, in the public. I don't even think that they're even available yet. Um, Duke University, we, we have, and I'll talk about this project in a minute, but Duke University some students there, there's a um, kind of collective of sound studies people down there, and they, I think they call themselves Soundbox, I think that is what they call themselves, but anyway, um, myself, um, Salvador Barajas, and John Priestley um, make art together, and um, with Salvador's wife, Dina, who's a chair of the dance department at Radford, um, we submitted a project to them, you know, basically about the studio. Like, hey, we're doing the studio. It's like freaking crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so that's wrapping up now, and they have a couple tracks, but we don't, you know, we haven't uh, unethically used that. Either. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because even if you looked at it from the um, individual's point of view, like if you had an individual that was going in there and making a lot of stuff, um, I was wondering if you were offering them a way to like get it out, mm-hmm. you know. And that's real tricky, and that's a uh, you know that's where you get into where the idealism of art you know kind of slams against the realities of the prison industrial complex, right? You mm-hmm. know that um, you know it's against the rules um, for anybody to. Um, profit off of any art that they make while they're incarcerated, so there's that. And it's also against the rules for people to, um, like, third-party people to kind of release identifying information about people who are incarcerated, Mm -hmm. which I really agree with, I think, that, you know, um, you know, it can be, it's, it's complicated, but, like, so if, you know, John Smith, you know, made this track, I couldn't release it and say, oh, this is, you know, John Smith, he's an incarcerated Richmond City Jail, you know, what would that, how would that impact his future job prospects, maybe, maybe his family doesn't mm-hmm. know, that kind of stuff. So, 
Um, so what we said is we said that all of the the um, sound or music or poetry, whatever that's produced inside the jail, is kind of collective and anonymous for the purposes of the project. And then, um, you know, we've tried to, as best as we can at least, keep track of who's doing what. But of course, you know, a lot of them are really, truly collaborative projects. There's only six or seven people working on one mm -hmm. track. So but we tried our best to keep track of it so that, you know, there ever was a way to, you know, make money um, that wasn't going to like some sort of nonprofit or whatever that we would be able to kick back. But you know, our our hope is eventually that we would get a space with a studio on the outside so that people could learn mm. learn how to use it um, while they're incarcerated and then come out and have a place to to use it on the outside too. That stuff is so expensive. At the very least, um, you know, it it gave people and gives people um, a different way to express themselves, um, which is really important because jail is a very dehumanizing experience. It's uh, it's awful, and it's um, you know I can't you know I, I can't believe that. That concludes part two of our four-part interview with Liz Canfield. All of our episodes are available at variousthings.org. This interview was conducted on August 23rd, 2014.
on a variety of things. You know, we do mostly poetry, music, and visual art. But um, you know, I've had people who have gotten gotten out who want to do a resume workshop or who want to do, you know, a Spanish language workshop or whatever. And so, you know, I envision that we can get a space to be more like a you know like a free school like they did in the seventies or whatever, or like, or like Empire, you know, was a free school in Richmond, you know, where people would just sign on or volunteer to do a six-week course in you know, whatever, auto repair, I don't care mm -hmm. what it is. Um, and they would do that and people would sign up and it would be, you know, something that would be available to to anybody, um, but, you know, primarily for people who have felony convictions. Um, that's interesting because if you if you get food stamps, I know they have this welfare to work program. Mm -hmm. I had to go through it, and they like were trying to teach me how to write a resume. And so I'm thinking like, oh well, that per no, they couldn't because they can't. That's amazing. That it's such a horrible thing when you think about it, though. That 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 circular thing. I a buddy of mine, he's in prison, and you know, the first thing he did before he went to prison was he got a neck tattoo. Mm -hmm. He's like, I don't have to worry about getting a job anymore because no one's going to fucking hire me in the first place. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's really, um, it really is a, a terrible, terrible thing. And it's, uh, you know, before people go in, they, you know, they they begin to cope with it, you know. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, yeah, it's, it's a really, really terrible thing. And, but it's also, it's really, people do amazing and incredible things despite all of this mm -hmm. awfulness. I mean, um, another project that we have going um, is we're doing a large-scale production of an art book so it's going to be um, a codex, which is kind of the, the, the in book evolution, follow the scroll, and it's an accordion, it's a long kind of book, accordion folds back into kind of like a traditional book um, format, and it's going to be um, mostly visual art and poetry by prisoners in the Richmond City Jail, some of whom have gotten out recently. Um, so they're working on it with us on the outside, which is really cool. But um, yeah, so there'll be letterpress, screen printing, um, a lot of the art will be digitally printed, but it's a, it's a, it's a huge, huge project. Um, and that, you know, has been really, um, you know, people just love that. And we talk about, you know, your stuff's going to be in the codex, and they're just like, I don't can wrap my head around what a codex is, but I'm just excited, you know, we do scenes and other, you know, kind of smaller scale, more DIY, you know, kind of publications. And that also is, you know, I mean, people who never have had contact with um, people who are incarcerated or, or don't really know that much about it can, you know, read, um, read their work, you know, be touched by it. But then it's also like a really... Um, great way for people to, you know, um, have something to look forward to. So it's good for people on both sides oh, yeah. of it. Definitely. 
And that concludes part three of our four-part interview with Liz Canfield. All of our episodes are available at variousthings.org. This interview was conducted on August 23rd, 2014. Theoretically aware of the, um, the damages to prison and their correlation to a system of slavery. Um, and so I've always been politically active around jails and prisons. But, um, you know, because of my career and, and, you know, having to kind of work my way into a job where, a teaching job where I could have the time to, to, to do it as my job. You know, it took some time, and then um, Dave Coogan, you know, had set up the program. It was like perfect. So that's kind of how it started. And originally, I just wanted to, you know, just kind of teach a writing class and go about my day. And then the first day I had a class, I was like, you know, I th- this is going to be more than just a, a job, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I kind of knew um, because I, you know, of my correspondence with people. Um, I, I knew that it was going to be more intense that I would be able to leave it there um, but it, it's really hard to describe how it feels to kind of be able to walk out of, of, of a town you know if I was in there teaching or visiting someone or whatever just to be able to walk out in the, in the mixture of like heartbreak and relief mm-hmm. and shame mm-hmm. for um, you know, having to leave you know, people behind. Mm-hmm. And that's just a really complicated and um, difficult to describe emotion. I imagine so. Um, you know, that's that sort of touches on this other kind of, I guess thing that's happening is that you're coming probably from a higher educational background than some of the folks in the jail. Um, So like multiple, I guess, levels of privileges or whatnot. Um, How do you address that when, when, like maybe mentally, like how do you like kind of understand that when you're working with these folks? 
Well, I think that, you know, I think that's like a, I think that um, the majority of people who are incarcerated are poor and of color. That's just like, that's a statistical fact. It's always been that way. It was designed to be that way. It will continue to be that way unless we really get our shit together and do something r real about it. And we don't do palliative things like, you know, make better jails and prisons. Palliative. Yeah. Um, and so that, that is just, that is just a, a fact. I grew up poor, and I grew up with white skin privilege, and then I went to college, um, you know, and that largely had to do with zip code, um, you know, and white skin privilege. Um, and I just, you know, that's, that's just a fact. And even though, um, even though in a, you know such a kind of this privileged place at the university, mm -hmm. um, I because of my class background, I always feel like an imposter or mm -hmm. someone who really shouldn't be here. Like mm -hmm. I don't belong here. You know, I work I work for people who uh, and work with a lot of people who come from very elite places where it was never questioned where they would go to college. You know, I was like, of course you're, you know, this person, and I'm kind of like kind of feel like I snuck in, mm -hmm. and maybe that's why, um, that's why I can relate on some level, um, even though I'm never, um, I never ignore or dismiss the fact that I do still have these privileges or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, well, it sounds like you're kind of an outsider in both situations, right. but you can have common threads that you can relate to each mm -hmm. on some level. Yeah, I think I think so. I think so. And you know, that's where the the writing um, and the music and the art, you know, kind of come in. Is that you know, I don't pretend to be um, uh, a savior or mm -hmm. a sinner or you know any of those things. Um, I write, I write stuff too. I record stuff too, um, and so you know we can kind of experience each other, um, trying to make art, trying to tell our stories, trying to um, get it right. You know, whatever it may be, whether it's a poem or a, or you know, a hip hop song or whatever. Um, and I think that that helps too, just the, the honesty and the integrity of the work itself. And that concludes part four of our four-part interview with Liz Canfield. I'd like to thank Liz for taking the time to talk with me, and I hope you enjoyed listening as well. All of our episodes are available at variousthings.org. This interview is conducted on August 23rd, 2014. Thanks for listening.